Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bonjour, bienvenue la série de sermons de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Please check it out. God bless you and take care. This summer, I'm going to preach from Matthew chapter 17, the first 13 verses. Very familiar passage of scripture. It is about the transfiguration of Jesus. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, They saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And when the disciples understood, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Jesus is soon facing the cross. He told Peter just before we get to this this passage about how he is going to be crucified. And remember, Peter says, may it never be. And Jesus replies to him, get behind me, Satan. And then he ends this event on the mountain by telling Peter, James, and John that he is going to suffer and die at the hands of men. He is preparing them for what is to come. And even more important, Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain was God the Father's preparation for the Son of what was to come. In fact, in Luke it says that the Father sent Moses and Elijah to speak, quote, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, unquote. The literal word for departure is exodus. Jesus was being prepared for his exodus from this world in order to bring in a new world. 
He, like Israel before him, is going to pass through deep waters, waters of suffering in death, in order to get you and me into the promised land across the Jordan. He was getting ready to go through hell in order to get us into heaven. And part of this preparation was to send Moses, who by the power of God had led the first exodus, Moses the lawgiver. And he sent Elijah, who it had been prophesied would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Israel's two greatest figures were sent to Jesus in order to help him prepare to undergo the greatest test in human history. Jesus wanted his closest friends, Peter, James, and John there too, people he especially was preparing to have leadership in the kingdom of God that he was bringing. And he wanted them to witness what was about to happen. And so Jesus took them up on that mountain to be with himself and Moses and Elijah. And I don't want you to miss this point. I don't want you to skirt over this. In order to face what he needed, Jesus needed himself some church. Jesus needed encouragement from some old-timers named Elijah and Moses. He needed the friendship of the company of James and John and Peter. He needed to come together with others of like mind so they could all hear the Father's voice together. Jesus needed help. He needed the affirmation of mature saints. He needed the comfort of people who loved him. He needed the Father to hear the Father say, You are my Son in whom I am well pleased. He said it at the start of his ministry at baptism, and now he's saying it at the end of his ministry before he faces a cross. Jesus needed fellow believers. And if Jesus needed fellow believers, how much more do we need fellow believers? We live in an age where coming together in the name of Christ and worshiping is considered optional by many Christians. And I don't want to single out anybody in particular, but some of the statistics that are coming down now from church research are startling to me. Did you know that between people age 18 to 35, the ones that go to church, and the vast majority do not go to church, but the ones that go to church consider regular attendance to be once every two months. Six times a year is what is considered regular attendance. No, this is, uh, we live in an age that is riddled with individualism. Many people's attitudes is, all I need is Jesus, I don't need anybody else, just me and Jesus is all that's necessary. The only problem with that kind of thinking is that Jesus himself thinks you need more than Jesus. In fact, Jesus thought he needed more than just a word from his father. The father thought so too. That is why on the Mount of Transfiguration, there were six people, not one person. Jesus didn't go up there by himself just to hear his father's word. There were five other people up there. The body of Christ is not optional. I knew no people who consider this their church who haven't been to a worship service here in months and some in years. We haven't seen their faces literally for long, long periods of time. But we're their church. Brothers and sisters, being a part of church is more than holding H. Bick in high positive regard. It is more than the occasional fond thought about us and how we are liked. Real community is not saying... 
I like HBIC. Perhaps our paths will cross someday. Folks, church is not a high school reunion. It is not an alumni association meeting that meets annually. It bothers me when I run into people who say, this is my church, HBIC is my church. I run into them at Walmart. It's amazing how many people you run into at Walmart. This is a Walmart church. And some of them say, hey, Pastor Woody, long time no see. Let's do lunch and catch up. I don't want to do lunch and catch up. I want to see you on Sunday. We need each other in concrete, close proximity. More than ever, we need each other. We are swimming in moral sewage in this culture. We are swimming in lies perpetrated by a so-called tolerant society that is anything but tolerant. We are drowning in violence and its glorification, drowning in materialism and its cost. Yet more than ever, many Christians are saying, despite being outnumbered and outgunned, I'll go it alone. That's crazy talk. William Willimon, who is a great Methodist pastor and preacher and bishop and all of that, said that years ago he was invited to preach in a congregation where a friend of his served. The congregation was located in the heart of one of our great cities. The congregation was made up entirely of African-American people who lived in the tenement houses in that part of the city. Williman said, I arrived at 11 o'clock expecting to participate in an hour of worship. You do not worship for an hour in an African-American church. Poor Williman thought he was going to do it like they do in the suburbs with Methodists. That's a one-hour service. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. We finished at 11.57 every Sunday. And there was a guy in the back, I kid you not, who sat in the very back row, and when it was 11.56, he held up his watch and did that to the preacher. That was his spiritual gift. Thou shalt not go beyond 11.57. When he died, all kinds of chaos broke loose in the church. Wilman said he was there. And he said, I didn't preach. The service started at 11, and I didn't even get up to preach till 1230. Church should have been over a half hour earlier. He said there were five or six hymns and gospel songs, a great deal of speaking, hand clapping, singing. He said, we did not have the benediction until nearly 1.15 in the afternoon. He said, even after I got finished preaching for 30 minutes, they kept on going. He said, I was exhausted. Then he said, why do African-American people stay in church so long? As he asked his friend when they went out to lunch, he said, I, I pastor churches and we never last more than an hour. And his friend smiled. And then he explained, unemployment runs nearly 50% in this neighborhood. For our youth, the unemployment rate is much higher. That means that when our people go about during the week, Everything they see, everything they hear tells them you're a failure, you're a nobody, you are nothing because you do not have a good job, you do not have a fine car, you have no money. So I must gather them here once a week to get their head straight. I get them together here in the church and through the hymns and the prayers and the preaching say that what is out there all around you is a lie. You are somebody Despite appearances, you are royalty. God has bought you with a price and loves you as his chosen people. 
He said church goes so long in order to get people straight because the world beats them up so bad when they're not in church. When you are fighting for your life, the clock is unimportant. (laughs) You know? And by the way, in most of the world, the clock is unimportant. And the problem with many of us is that we don't know we're fighting for our lives. We think we're in good shape. I'm glad you're here this morning. I'd rather meet you here than at Walmart. Because you need to be here this morning. You need to be here to get your head straight, to recalibrate. You need to hear a word from the Lord that will take you beyond your personal agendas this morning. You need to be here in order for people to get close enough to love you, encourage you, pray for you, bless you, support you, help you, mentor you. And I'm not just talking about Sunday morning. I'm talking about life groups. I'm talking about one-on-one. I'm talking about mentorship. You need to be here so we can all get on the same page and work together, see God's vision for us together, and in the power of God make it happen. We need to be here because we're outnumbered out there. Alone, it's so much easier to drift. Alone, it's so much easier to succumb to the world's propaganda. You need to be here in order to be reminded that you are part of something bigger than the world, bigger than yourself, bigger than your paycheck, and bigger than your problems. You need to be here to detox from this world and its insanity. And more important than anything else I just said, We need to be here because where two or more, two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in their midst. And the the verb are, is, are. In the Greek, it's in the intensive. What he is saying is when two or three of you get together in my name, I am there in a more intense fashion. My presence is more manifest than if you're alone. Let me remind you, Jesus revealed his glory when they were together. Beholding the glory of Jesus on that mountain was a community event. It says he was transfigured before them. Plural, them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white like light. And later it says a cloud came down. You've heard of this cloud before, by the way. It too was bright, as if it was made of pure light, an amazing cloud. It was the same cloud Israel had seen before more than a thousand years earlier. The cloud of God's Shekinah glory, which reveals God's majesty and hides his face at the same time because no one can look into the face of God in this world and live. That Shekinah cloud was the one that led Israel out into the desert during the day. That Shekinah cloud was the one that came down on the tabernacle after it was completed and shook the earth. That Shekinah cloud was the one that filled Solomon's temple and his presence exploded on that day when the temple was finished. When we come together as church, our most important task is to see the glory of the Lord. It is to look at Jesus and see his face shining like the sun. It is to be covered with the Shekinah of God's presence We are here today to hear what Jesus heard that day. Every person here needs to hear, Daughter, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Son, 
You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Church, you are my beloved church in whom I am well pleased. We are here today to see the invisible. By faith we know Christ is here. By faith we know the Spirit is moving. We are here to claim God's Word and the realities of His Word that go beyond what our eyes see. Jesus is here. Angels are here. There have been people in this church more than once. People, at least twice that I know of since I've been here, people had visions of angels here worshiping God with us. The Spirit is here. The Shekinah of God covers us. Us, imperfect, limited, flawed us who are His children. That should give you goosebumps. That should give you goosebumps. And then, and then right in the middle of this, Peter starts running his yap. He says, I have a great idea. I think we ought to start a capital campaign and do a church building project. And not only that, let's not just build one building, let's build three. One for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. And I, out of my magnanimous heart, will head it up, Jesus. And at this point, the Father speaks, interrupting Peter's train of thought. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, shut up. Zip it. Shut your yap. Stop talking. Listen to my son. You're just getting in the way now, Peter. Folks, the Bible advocates every imaginable way of worship. In Scripture, you will find as a means of worship shouting, dancing. I have yet to really cut loose on that one. Liturgy, the use of every kind of musical instrument, kneeling, lying prostrate on the ground before the Lord. But at some point in worship, both individually and corporately, we need to shut up. We need to be silent. We need to listen to the Son speak. This theme is woven throughout Scripture. All through the Psalms, you see the word selah. How many of you know what the word selah means that it goes through the Psalms? It means stop and be silent and contemplate what you've just heard. Mull it over. Let it sink in. Reflect on its meaning. Don't try to take in too much too fast until you've thought about and applied what you've just read or listened to. Don't run ahead to the next scripture before you've absorbed the scripture you just read. Selah! Be set still. In Revelation, just before there is a massive unleashing of praise before the throne. Remember that? We all are familiar with it. Where one day we will stand before the throne and say, Blessed is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and majesty and dominion and on and on. But there's something happens before we get there. Do you remember? It says that all of heaven, before that explosion of praise took place, was totally silent for an hour. Can you imagine this sanctuary being totally silent for an hour? I can't imagine me being totally silent for an hour. 
Why? Why the silence before the explosion of praise? I think that silence will be a time to reflect and remember. Remember what Christ did for us all. Remember the strength he gave us in times of weakness. Remember the grace that forgave us 70 times 7 and then 70 times 7 some more. The grace that followed us all the days of our lives. I think we'll remember all that God brought us through. All the answered prayers, all the blessings. It will be a time of contemplating our complete and total salvation, the limitless future for all of us, and the sacrifice that made it all possible. It will be time to absorb the light of heaven, which is the love of God poured all over us and in us. And then and only then, after that hour of silence and contemplation and listening, then and only then does the shouting start. There are times to be silent, even in heaven. Jesus didn't say repeatedly, let those who shout, shout some more. What did he say over and over again? Let those who have ears, let them hear. That's what he said over and over again. Listen, if we are truly in the Spirit, there will be a rhythm to our worship. There will be times of shouts and times of silence. Times to be loud and time to shut up. Times to dance times to kneel. God is not one-dimensional. Neither should our worship be one-dimensional. There are rhythms to worship. If we want God to speak, doesn't it make sense that we have to listen? What does it matter if God talks and we talk over him? And how do we listen if we're focused on ourselves and our agenda and our thoughts and our lists? There are times to shut up, to look at his glory and just take it in. Mark Buchanan said there was a man in his church who became sick and it lasted and it lasted and it lasted. His illness went on for months and they couldn't quite explain it. This man was a type A kind of guy. He would go full blast at everything night and day. He was a workaholic's workaholic. But this illness put him down. The sickness collapsed him and broke him. He had to spend whole days and weeks housebound, idle, waiting, saving up energy just to go up and down the stairs. He spent, but God started talking to him, and he had to listen. There wasn't much else to do. And he spent more time with his wife and children in those few months than in all the years he had known them. He read more than he had ever read. Didn't have time to read before that. And he contemplated more and prayed more than he ever had in his life. And one day he said to Buchanan, I know God is trying to get my attention. I just haven't figured out what he wants my attention for. He must want me to do something. Buchanan thought for a moment and he replied, maybe that's the problem. You think he wants your attention in order for you to do something. Maybe he just wants your attention, period. Maybe that's what God requires most from us, our attention. This is the essence of worship. This is the essence of prayer. It is being fully present and wholly awake before God, ready to receive. We all know people so self-absorbed that they would miss the apocalypse if it happened in their living room. And we know other people so alert 
They seem to operate with a sixth sense, deciphering the hand of God in mere whispers and flickers and shadows. Their perceptiveness is not bounded by time or circumstance. You can learn to pay attention to God. And you can learn to hear his whispers. And you can learn to sense when he is leading you somewhere. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes focus. But people throughout history have learned how to listen. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Do you know his voice? Have you learned to tune in to his voice? We are here to worship. And the heart of worship is paying attention to the glory that is in us and around us and passing through us this morning. Worship is where Jesus has our full attention. And we need nothing more in that moment. Nothing more. So we listen. And then we shout. We are silent. And then we celebrate. We are still enough to receive what God is giving And then we respond with praise. That, in general, is the rhythm of worship. One of the things, simple things, Jesus has given me in the last years is when I come to prayer, I usually come all a Twitter and all stirred up. And God invites me to come that way. And so I vent and I shout and I complain and I sound like a psalm, you know, why, oh, Lord, do people keep wrecking my cars? That's more relevant than you know. (laughs) And I get whatever's in my system out before the Lord because we're invited to do that. And then I try to get quiet after I've blown out my pipes. John Donne, one of the great... Christian mystics of all time lamented, and it's hard. I want you to understand, it's hard to get quiet. People think it's easy. It is not easy. Dunn, who was one of the great mystics and poets of, and, and, and just so tuned into God, Here's, listen to his confession. He said, I neglect God for the noise of a fly. A fly throws off my prayer life. The rattling of a coach passing by gets me distracted. A creaking door gets me off of God. You have to learn to be still and know God. But in these last years, after venting and after quieting myself, I pray one simple prayer. Lord, I've I've done all the talking up to now. Jesus, what do you want to give me now? Today, in this moment, and I open my soul in the silence to him, and I simply receive whatever comes. Sometimes it's peace, peace beyond all understanding, irrational peace. This week I'm having irrational peace because circumstantially it's, a ter- been, it's been an awful week. Sometimes I experience love, and sometimes it's this gentle, gentle flow of love. It's very quiet, and sometimes it just It's like a dam bursts in my soul. Sometimes joy floods me. Sometimes it's just this quiet joy. Sometimes I get a word, an insight about where God is growing me. Sometimes I get wisdom about a situation. A thought just pops in my head. Sometimes it is assurance and encouragement. 
it is amazing how often I get something very real and very concrete from God when I shut my yap. And it comes in the silence. When I open my mind and heart to the God who is in me and around me and with me, shut up, Peter. It's time to receive, not talk. It's time to behold God's glory, not plan our personal building projects. And by the way, when it comes to some of that, it very often where churches get in trouble and Christians get in trouble is when we do stuff for God instead of listen to God. There's no substitute. Peter thought he had some great ideas. The father said, you've missed the whole point of what's going on here. Don't work for God, work with God. It's time to behold my son's glory, the father said. You know what the heart of God's glory is? It's his heart, his loving heart, pure, absolute love. Jesus wants us to feel his heart. We can and should love many people. There are many people in most of our lives we love, but there can only be one great love like his. Remember when you first loved Jesus, the joy of it, falling in love, captivating your being, consuming you. But you know what I've discovered after being a Christian 45 years? Falling in love is easy. Staying in love is a different animal. It takes focus. It takes intentionality. To stay in love means you keep your eyes on Jesus. You open and reopen your heart again and again to him. To stay in love, you must keep intentionally looking at who you love and receiving from him. There is no substitute. Perhaps one of the simple definitions of prayer and worship for every individual here is pay attention the rest of your life. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain and build condos up there. But the mountain experience was not given so Jesus and Peter and James and John could pull away from humanity. It was empowered to empower them to change humanity. Remember what happened right after they come down the mountain? There's a boy there that's deaf and needs healing. There's a boy there that's demon-possessed and needs freeing. There's a cross that is to be born for our lostness that is waiting on Jesus. Jesus seemed to be saying, we came up here to go back down there and change things. That is why we are gathered today. To be with Jesus in here so that we can see and work with Jesus out there. Darren Whitehead is a pastor, and he said one day, you know, news every pastor and every church hates hearing. Uh, Joan, a woman in their church, discovered after medical tests that her teenage son, Will, had a serious, serious form of leukemia. 
And so he said that, that uh, there were some families in our church who basically called each other and said, let's go to their house and pray for 10 minutes. Just out, we won't even bother them. We'll stand outside of their house and pray for 10 minutes. And so Darren said, Pastor Darren said, well, let's take our family and join them. It was a small church, you know, two or 300 people. And he said, when we pulled our car into the subdivision where Will lived, we noticed we couldn't get anywhere near the house. In fact, there were cars lining the streets, and we had a long walk to get to their home. Darren said, my wife and daughters and I went to the house, and we discovered standing around the house were more than 200 of our parishioners who had spontaneously thought the same thing everybody else had thought. And we circled their home, and we prayed for Will. Young people, older people, people of different ethnicities and vocations, all gathered around together as the church. And we stood with this family and went before God with, with them and for them. Rather than allowing a family to suffer in isolation, 200 people formed a human circle that became a portal for the arms of Jesus and the glory of God. And they said right there in the yard in that neighborhood, God showed up. God showed up. And Joan, Will's mother, wrote this in a blog later that evening, whatever a blog is. No one could have prepared me for tonight. You see, God showed up at our door tonight and in our yard and on our front porch and on the swings and on the play sets and next to the trees in front of our house. God is fully present all the time at our house like he is at your house. But tonight, he really showed up at our house. How often do you get to see that? I remember sitting in Will's room looking out the window as people walked up and they just kept coming and coming and coming. And I remember sobbing as I looked out to the backyard and saw 200 people out there praying for us. And some of them had brought a balloon. And on the balloon, there were the words, I am in your midst. And he was. And he was. When we worship God, when we gather in his name, God finds it irresistible. He shows up. <laughs> when we serve together, God shows up. Something special happens. We become portals together of the glory of God. When we pray together, it's not just Jesus that shines. It's us. It's not just his face that glows. It's ours. And the world sees the reflection. May Jesus help us value his church as much as he does. And together, may we take what we behold in worship, what we behold on the mountain, and take it into the valley and into the streets and reflect him wherever we go. And it all starts when we look into the face of Jesus. It all starts when we quiet ourselves and say, Lord, I will receive whatever you want to give me. I've talked to you. 
I've vented to you. I've presented my concerns to you. Now help me quiet down and help me listen. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes and will you listen? Maybe, just maybe, God has something for you this morning. We'll take a moment. And who knows what might be whispered into your heart. Lord, teach us to be still and know that you are God. Teach us to listen and trust what we hear and act on it. Good shepherd, help us to recognize your voice ever more clearly year after year after year. Lord Jesus, help us not to run around doing stuff for you, but to listen to the master, listening to the voice of God. Listening as you say to us again and again, you are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. I'd like uh, the worship team to come forward.